Some of you have probably, maybe, heard of the poet Dylan Thomas. And if you have not heard of Dylan and his poetry, you have probably heard of his one poem, which is his most famous, that is entitled, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. My favorite, one of my favorite movies, Interstellar, uses this poem. Good Matthew McConaughey flick. But when you, when you start to read this poem and as you look into the background of it, it's guessed that Dylan wrote this poem for his father as a way to help him deal with his impending death. And in the poem, I'll read a bit of, a bit of it to you in a second here, he encourages a very defiant posture toward death. Here's the first stanza of the poem. You'll probably recognize this. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rage at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. It's a pretty short poem, but in the next four stanzas, stanzas, I'm not going to read them to you, he addresses different types of men, the wise man, the good man, the wild man, and the grave man, the serious man. And he talks about how each of these different types of men should approach their upcoming death. And finally, in the last stanza, he returns to his father, who many think the poem is about, and here's what he says to him. And you, my father, there on the sad height, and what they think he's getting at with that phrase, the sad height, is the aloneness that you experience in the moment of death. You're by yourself. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse Bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. It's a pretty intense poem when you read the whole thing. It's been used uh, in quite a few movies and TV series over the decades since it was written in the 40s. And it's used often because there's something to in us as human beings that there's something appealing to standing up against an overwhelming enemy, even though you know it's going to defeat you. There's something appealing about standing up to it as as it approaches you to destroy you. Even as you meet your fate, you burn and rage as a way to hold on to your dignity and your pride. Now, let me be clear. I'm not endorsing the way that this poem says we should approach death the raging response to death. This morning, I'm not endorsing that, but I find this poem fascinating because I think it highlights to us the undeniable power that death has in our lives. As human beings, there's nothing that we can do about death when it approaches. We and ourselves have no power over it. The only thing that any person that an unbeliever in particular can do as death approaches is accept it. And here he's, he's telling us to accept it with a posture of pride and to rage against it. It's an enemy that we can't defeat. And our own death, your death, is inevitable. It will come at some point. Even in the Gospel of John, death is viewed as the ultimate enemy. And I know that because this last of Jesus' seven signs, he's gone through all these different signs throughout the gospel, and this is the last of the signs that he will do in John chapter 11. This last sign has Jesus confronting the greatest enemy, death, 
head on. And this sign is fixed in the Gospel of John where it will look back on the first 10 chapters and it pulls everything about Jesus's messianic identity together in this one sign. And it also anticipates what's coming in the next part of the Gospel where Jesus himself will face death, the greatest enemy, head on and triumph over it. And so it looks backward and it looks forward And so we're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at John chapter 11. I love this story, and it is profound in the teaching that it gives us. So this week and next week, we're going to look at it. And here's what I want to show you these next couple of weeks. Five characteristics of death. We're going to talk about the greatest enemy, but we're not going to focus solely on the greatest enemy because all of these characteristics are something that we see in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So five characteristics of death in light of the coming of Christ. Of course, everything has changed in our posture toward death now that Christ has come. This passage will show us why that is the case and why we don't need to rage against the dying of the light when it comes. The first one of these characteristics is that there is a purpose to death. It is something that fits within God's plan that may come as a surprise to you. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 in John 11. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. You'll see this later in the text. Danny read it this morning. But this village of Bethany, which is a great name, let me just say, was about about two miles from Jerusalem, so really pretty close to Jerusalem, and it was located on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, so just a short way off from the city. And we haven't been introduced to these people before. If you're reading through John, these are new names that that come into the story here. But you do read about them in other Gospels, and so I have no doubt this morning that you're familiar with Mary and Martha and Lazarus from reading about them elsewhere, and you're going to read about them again in chapter 12. And John actually mentions the story here that he's going to get to in chapter 12 when Mary anoints the Lord with ointment. Now, that's an interesting way to do it because that story doesn't happen until later And the week of Jesus' death, the week of Passover, is when that story takes place. And so I think it's interesting that John mentions it here before it happens. Why, Why does he do that? Is he getting things out of order? Well, no, I don't think he is. One of the things I think John wants to communicate through this is that you should be familiar with that story because you need to read his gospel multiple times. John assumes that you're not just going to read his gospel one time and pick up everything that you need to know the first time you read through it. He's assuming that as you read it more and more and more, that all of these insights and connections are going to be made as you dive into this and read it over and over again. And let me just say, that's the way your whole Bible works. The Old Testament is written not so you discover everything on the first read-through, It's written so that you read it again after you've read the New Testament and you go, that looks like Jesus. That's anticipating Christ. And so you read it over and over and the story becomes more rich and more full as you immerse yourself in it. But getting back to Mary and Martha and Lazarus here, obviously Lazarus is sick and so they send word to Jesus. Look at verse 3. 
So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. We find out here for the first time that there's a very close relationship between Jesus and Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Now, it says here that they send word to him. Why do they need to send word to him? Where is he that they have to send a messenger out to get him the information that they need to? Well, if you back up to chapter 10 in verse 39, we find out that Jesus is not anywhere near Jerusalem at this point. Look back there. Again, this is after he does some teaching and some discussion with the Jews. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. And so Jesus has left Judea, where Jerusalem is, and he's gone back east across the Jordan River because of this threat on his life. And that's a key point you need to remember. And so the messenger reaches him across the Jordan River, and Jesus responds in verse 4. Look there. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man, or the Son of God, may be glorified through it. Now, This is not Jesus being cold and calloused here, even though it may seem that way when you first read it. And Jesus is not confused about what's going to happen in the story. I mean, he says this illness does not lead to death, but if you've read it, you know that Lazarus does die. What's he mean when he says this? Well, when he says it does not end in death, he's talking about the final result of this. Death is not going to be the victor in this case. He's not saying that there's not going to be death involved, but death is not going to have the final word in this story. The result is going to be, as you'll see next week, the resurrection from the dead. And that, with death as a part of it, death leading to resurrection, is the part that Jesus is talking about, having as its purpose the glory of God. This whole situation is aimed at God's glory. I want you to notice in verse 4 as well how Jesus puts his own glory on the same level as God's glory. Look at verse 4. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He's saying essentially that he is God and that The Father and the Son will receive glory through this situation. Now, this whole way of talking about some suffering or some difficulty or some illness leading to God's glory, this should remind you of the man born blind in John chapter 9. Remember that? The disciples asked, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, it's not that he sinned and that directly caused this, It's that he's been blind since birth for the glory of God. Both of these men, the man born blind and Lazarus, experienced suffering and difficulty, and their suffering and difficulty and what happened through it put the character of Christ on display. Again, as you look at these miracles, let me remind you, it's not, the teaching is not just that Jesus was powerful enough to heal a blind man and to raise someone from the dead. 
That's not all that we gain from these miracles. They're signs that are meant to point us to particular aspects of Christ's ministry and character. So, the man born blind, Jesus says, before that, I am the light of the world. I bring revelation, illumination. You see who the Father is through me. And that will be very true about this sign that he's going to, be, to perform with Lazarus and raising him from the dead. Now, I want you to think about that principle of suffering and even death, bringing glory to God, glory to Christ, exalting his character. That's certainly true of Lazarus here because of the way this story unfolds. But let's bring that over into our own lives and think about that principle for a second. It holds true for those of us who follow Christ. Suffering, difficulty, affliction, and even death fit within God's sovereign purposes. All of those things, as hard as they may be, are meant to showcase who God is. They're meant to put his character on display. They're meant to point us to his love and to his goodness and to who he is. And you might be asking, well, how, how does death do that? How does suffering do that? Well, there are a variety of ways that affliction points us to God's goodness, but let me just mention one for you this morning. Whenever you experience suffering in this life, whenever a loved one dies, it makes you long for things to be set right. You realize through that that this is not how it should be. Romans 8 talks about the creation groaning because of the brokenness that it experiences and the corruption because of sin. Suffering and affliction and death are the dark spots on the tapestry of God's work in the world. And those dark spots help to highlight and illuminate the grace and the glory and the goodness of God. And so when affliction happens in your life as a believer, when suffering happens, when there is the death of a loved one, know that God is in the midst of that and he is working and he's working to bring about his glory and ultimately as well your good. That's what he's doing. But in the meantime, while we're living here in these mortal bodies, death always seems to be at hand, doesn't it? And that's the second characteristic here, that death is not only purposeful, there is a reason for it, it's also pervasive. Death and suffering and affliction seem to be everywhere, and this is in verses 5 through 16. Now, lest you think Jesus is harsh here in verse 4 when he talks about God's glory, I want you to see how he pairs together God's glory and his love and affection for Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. God's glory and the goodness that comes to his people, the good of his people, come together in God's sovereign purposes. Oftentimes, those purposes are unclear to us. We don't know how this works for our good or for the good of those around us. But we trust God in the midst of that, that it does come for our good and for his glory. I want you to look at verse 6. So, directly connected to verse 5, all right? 
connected to God's or Christ's love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Look what he does because of that love. Verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So he loves them. He hears he's ill. And he stays two days longer where he was. What is going on? You would think that someone who has the power to heal and who loves this person would rush to the scene. Why didn't he make it, try to make it in time to heal Lazarus? And I think this passage, this connection that is clearly made between his waiting and his affection for them is so helpful for us this morning. Because sometimes God makes us wait for his timing because of his love for us. Not in spite of his love for us, but it is an expression of his love for us that we have to wait and sit in our suffering and affliction. We're meant to learn to trust him when we cannot see what he is doing. One author put it, whoops, I skipped it. Out of order. One author put it like this. What Jesus does in this episode seems calculated to teach his followers to wait and hope, to trust him as he lets them linger on the tender hooks of life. Jesus is not going to leave those he loves in a lasting lurch, but he will leave them there for a time in order to lengthen the lasting glory he means to lavish upon them. So let me ask you this morning. I think an obvious application. What are you currently facing that is requiring you to wait on God? You seem stuck and you're begging God for a resolution. You want things to come together. You want it to get easier for the next little bit, but it's not coming. And so you you feel like you're in this perpetual lurch, like you're stuck on something. I don't know what a tenterhook is, but that does not sound comfortable to be waiting on a tenterhook for God to do something. And that's how you feel right now. Let me encourage you in the midst of it that God has you waiting because he loves you, because he is for you, not because he's angry with you and he's silent in heaven ignoring your pleas for help. He loves you, and so you wait for him. The waiting is the opportunity to learn to trust the goodness of God. And you can see that Jesus here focuses on trusting God in the midst of the waiting, even now as the whole passage shifts to focus on death. Death becomes the theme of this next section. Everything is about death. The place of Judea is presented in many ways in this passage as the place where you go to die. Lazarus is going to die. The disciples think they're going to die. Jesus knows that when he goes there, they're going to die. And so everything now becomes focused on the pervasiveness of death here. Look at verse 7 through 10. Then after he said this, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you were going there again? Reasonable question, right? They were there. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? 
If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is, look, I'm the light of the world. The light's still shining. There's still work to do. And that work requires me to go to Judea. And when I go to Judea, I'm going to meet the death of Lazarus there. That's what's going to happen. So the disciples are anticipating death. And now look what Jesus says in verses 11 through 15. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Again, it's almost like Judea has become the place of death here. Lazarus is going to die, or he already has died, and the disciples expect, look at verse 16, that they will die as well. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I don't know if Thomas is being sarcastic here, if he's being courageous and saying, well, let's go. We're all going to die anyway, so let's be with him. Let's go and, and do what we have to do as you do the work that you're required to do. But either way, the expectation is that death is pervasive. And that's one of the things we can say about death from this passage and then even just from our human experience, from the picture that the Bible as a whole gives concerning death. It's pervasive. It's, it's everywhere. And the other thing we can say is that death is an intrusion into God's good world. Death is a strong and powerful enemy. It is the greatest enemy to the goodness of God's creation. It is parasitic. It comes in and corrupts and destroys. It is a significant foe. That's why the disciples are so concerned about it here. And why the reality that Lazarus has already died is so overwhelming to everyone. Look, maybe Jesus could have healed him if he got to him when he was still alive. But now, well, it's, he's dead. There's nothing we can do about that. Despite death's power, our third characteristic starts to turn the corner on death. Death is powerful, but death is, backwards, provisional here. Verses 17 through 27. Death has power, and it is pervasive, but it only has it for a time. So after two days, Jesus and his disciples, he said he was going to wait, or said he waited a couple days, so he did. After two days, they, they journey to Judea, the place where death is expected and where death will be found. Look at verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now in my reading on this, I found that there was this line of rabbinic teaching that taught that when a person died, that his or her spirit would hover over his or her body for three days and then would depart on the third day to the spiritual realm or the place of the dead. 
I don't know if that's true. I suspect it's probably not. But it's very interesting here that Lazarus has been dead for four days. The point is, there's no faking this, right? This is dead, dead. He's been dead for a long time. And even if you believe that his spirit was hovering over his body for three days, this is well beyond that. And it is the fourth day. He wasn't just passed out. He wasn't just swooning. He was gone. And his death was accompanied by great mourning and weeping. Look at verses 18 and 19. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So these people travel the two miles to go and be with the family and comfort them. And then Martha goes out to meet Jesus as she hears he's approaching, verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha, verse 21, said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, I don't think when Martha says this that she's angry at Jesus. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. I think this is actually a statement of faith. She knows he's powerful. She's seen him heal people. She understands what his ministry has been about. And so she's operating on what she knows to be true. Look, you could have healed him if you were here. And that's what she says even in verse 22 there. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She wishes he was there. Jesus responds in verse 23. And one author said, and I thought this was a very good way to put it, Jesus' statement here is a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. Right? Could go either way with what he's saying here. And I think he does that on purpose. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. What's he mean by that, right? Well, Martha takes it one way. Look at verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, let's talk about that for a second. That belief that she has that there will be a resurrection one day. It may surprise you to know that the Old Testament is quite vague on what happens to people after they die. There are some passages that seem to address it. There's a lot of talk about souls going to Sheol or the place of the dead. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in our Bible Institute class. There are a few verses that you could read and you may interpret them to, to indicate that there's some sort of future bodily resurrection. There's a passage in Job that's like that. And so there's a, a little bit of a hint at, at some resurrection from the dead. But, but ultimately, in the Old Testament, it talks about people going to sleep with their fathers. And, and what happens to you after you die is really not that big of a concern for the Old Testament writers or for the Israelites as a whole. And that sort of vagueness about what happens to you after you die and, and a future bodily resurrection is one of the reasons that there were two major viewpoints on a future resurrection in Judaism. I'm sure you've heard this before, but there's a Sadducean viewpoint that says there is no such thing as a future bodily resurrection. And then there's a Pharisaical viewpoint, which believes in a future bodily resurrection. You see them arguing about this in the Gospels. You see Paul actually using this argument to his own advantage in the book of Acts. 
Now, according to verse 24, Martha believes what the Pharisees do, and she trusts that one day God will raise the dead. So she has this sort of belief. But her belief in it is is a rather abstract belief that at some point on the last day, there's going to be some sort of resurrection of the dead. Jesus takes that belief and now gives it a laser focus. Look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And so Jesus says, you're right. There will be a future resurrection, but he does much more than affirm that abstract and vague belief in a future resurrection. Jesus says that that day is going to come about because of him and through him. He is the means by which the dead are raised to life. We saw early in the Gospel of John, in the prologue, in John 1, 1 through 18, that Jesus is and and has life in him. He came into this world as the light of life. We saw in John 10 that he came to give true life, abundant life. Here he is both the resurrection and the life. And what this means is that our third characteristic of death, death is now provisional. It is temporary. It doesn't have the last word. And that's exactly what Jesus is getting at in verse 25. Look back there with me. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, death is still going to come to you physically because you're alive in this life right now and it's going to happen. But it's temporary. It's provisional. Though he die, yet shall he live. Death will not have the last word for you if you're a follower of Christ. Those who believe in Jesus will live again, and those who live again through Jesus will never die. They will be eternally alive to abundant life. And that's the question, the key question that Jesus asks Martha at the end of verse 26. Do you believe this? She answers, she said to him, verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Belief in Jesus is the key issue. Why? Because belief in Jesus is what unites us to him. So that what he experiences, we now experience. All over the place, Paul talks about us being in Christ. And that's why this is so important, the union with Christ that we have. Because when he dies, we die with him. And our sins are forgiven through his death. And when he rises to new life, we rise with him. And we can expect, 1 Corinthians 15, that we will one day physically rise from the dead as well. Listen to Romans chapter 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism, baptism into him, into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like 
his. We're joined with him as he is bodily raised from the dead so that our future bodily resurrection is secure. In other words, death is now temporary. It's like the bully that came after you in elementary school. He might have his day. He might do a little bit of damage and make things uncomfortable, but he is temporary. It's provisional. Death's time is short, and its sting has been removed. Now, let me give you an example of where this really helps, I think, okay? Think about marriage for a moment. The language that the Bible uses regarding marriage in Genesis is of two people being joined together. When Bethany and I got married, our pastor talked about that image of what was going to happen to us when we got married, and he said that we were, it was going to be like two pieces of wood glued together with the strongest wood glue you can imagine. Now, what happens when you try to pull those pieces of wood apart years later? It's not a clean break, is it? It's not easy. It can't be done without incredible damage. And I think about that often when I see couples who've been married for 40, 50, 60 years, and one of them loses a spouse. Because death is a a tearing away of what should be together. It's unnatural. I know it seems very natural because we all experience it, but death is unnatural. It is a foreign entity in God's good world. It is not as it should be. But if you've lost a spouse, or if you're married and you're thinking about that prospect at any point in the future, let me remind you this morning that death is provisional. It does not have the last word. You will be separated from that loved one, but ultimately you will be raised together because Christ is the resurrection and the life. One author put it like this, and I love this. Christianity declares that the tragic intrusion of death on the goodness of creation is not the end of the story. The silence of death when you lose a loved one is but a pause in the symphony of our lives. We must play the rests, as my piano teacher repeatedly reminded me. Within the dynamic power of the resurrection, death is not the end of the melody, but is swept up in a glorious concluding theme that begins with a trumpet call and ends in bodily resurrection to abundant life with the Lord forever. And that is what Jesus is communicating to Martha here. Death is temporary. It's provisional. It doesn't have the final authority. It's a pause. Why is it a pause? That's what we'll get to next week. So you need to come back for the last two. All right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful this morning for these these stories that are told in the Gospels, the way they capture our hearts. We're so thankful for the love that you have for these people And even next week, how we'll see that love express itself in sadness, in anger over the intrusion of death, over frustration that this is reality now, but then the glorious power that you have over our greatest enemy 
and how you showcase that through your affection and love for your friends here. And so we're grateful to dive into this story this morning, and I pray that it would renew our minds and renew our hearts as we think about your character and how you have come to defeat death, overcome sin, and win the victory that we could never win on our own. Thank you for who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray.